Uh, good evening. Thank you for returning this evening, and uh, we will continue with our study of the book of Revelation, since it's the last thing in our 90-day reading plan, and a little late, perhaps, to tell you how to figure it out after you've already read it, but maybe you can go back and read it if you want to after this. Uh, last week we started, and uh, basically, if I had to summarize the whole sermon in a sentence or two, I'd say I told you that I don't know what Revelation means, and I'm not too worried about it. Uh, hopefully you got the same drift. That's supposed to be a little funny, by the way, but you guys are obviously zoned out here a little bit. Let's get to <laughs> uh, Revelation not really funny, I guess, so maybe it's okay. Uh, if you think you know what Revelation means, that's fine with me. Uh, let me just test something, though. How many of you have been to a uh, all-day seminar or a week-long lectureship or a three-month class uh, about Revelation? And somebody explained all the figures and symbols and uh, explained it all just fine. How many of you have been to anything like that in your Christian life? Okay, the rest of you don't go to class or seminars, evidently. Okay, those of you that have been to something like that, uh, would you like to come up here and give us a 30-second or a minute explanation of what you learned so well back then? I doubt if I get any takers. Uh, I mean, we study it and we learn what somebody says it means, but it's not that detail-oriented helpful in today's world. Uh, that's one reason I think we don't probably retain all that information. It's interesting. I mean, it's a fascinating book. All sorts of strange things in it. Um, but, like I said last week, everybody says, first of all, like John MacArthur quote, I put it on here again, uh, no other New Testament book possesses poses more serious and difficult interpretive challenges than Revelation. Uh, every scholar you read says that, and then they all go right on and tell you exactly what it means. Uh, but they say it's really hard to figure out. Uh, so I figure if everybody is so different, and that's why I went through the views and the millennial theories and all that last week, just kind of impress you that, hey, this thing's hard to figure out. Uh, so I'm going to give you a number of different snapshots this evening that might help you if you ever choose to read Revelation and want to understand it a little bit better. So let me just kind of shotgun approach here. First of all, uh, one principle, and I think this is the biggest one, that's why I called it number one, uh, the book of Revelation uses figurative language, lots of it. Not all of it is figurative language, but a lot of it is. And it's apocalyptic Literature. It's about the apocalypse or an apocalypse. We use that term kind of loosely these days. Uh, but an apocalypse is de described, defined as uh, some destructive, awesome catastrophe kind of thing. Uh, usually tied to like the end of the world. How's that going to happen? The apocalypse is coming. Um, so, so when the Bible contains 
some apocalyptic literature. It talks about something awesome, some destructive thing where a kingdom is going to fall or a nation is going to fall or the world is going to fall and be destroyed. And when it talks about those things, for some reason, and I'm not sure I understand why, it's often couched in terms of very, very figurative language. Um, I put some books on your handout there, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Joel. All of them have got some apocalyptic literature in them. They're not all apocalyptic, uh, but some of them have, and some of them have a lot of figurative language. Uh, for instance, if you want to, uh, don't need to, but Ezekiel, if you get in chapter 1, uh, Ezekiel's having a vision, and he talks about the uh, uh, four living creatures and describes them, and they're strange. And then he says, as uh, verse 15 of chapter 1, As I looked, I saw a wheel besides the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. And as for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, uh, they had the same likeness and their appearance and construction being with a wheel within a wheel. And when they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And it goes on and on with that. Now, obviously, I mean, you check the Internet, that's flying saucers. You know, a wheel within a wheel, and, and eyes all around it, and they... they Go without turning wherever they want to go. I mean, that's clear. You know, about aliens. I think. That's figurative language. Who knows what that means for sure? I mean, I know there's all, I mean, I can go right down here in my study Bible and this guy will tell me what it means. But I'm not sure he knows. (laughs) But the point is, when, when they're talking about, and Ezekiel prophesying about the fall of nations and Babylon and all this stuff. For some reason, they write in this strange, figurative, picturesque language. Uh, Daniel has got some in it. You read Daniel chapter 3, and it tells a historic story about three boys and a king. And if you read that story, or if you tell it to a kindergartner, the kindergartner will get the message. You know, there's evil king, and there's three boys that are serving God, and God wins. Okay, that historical story tells that. You go over to chapter 7, and it's apocalyptic stuff about something else. But the message is the same. There's God's team, and there's Satan's team. And God's more powerful. However it's pictured, how many wheels or dragons or beasts or whatever, that's kind of what apocalyptic stuff conveys. Now, the symbols uh, are all different, but they kind of repeat themselves through. You read Ezekiel and Daniel and some of those others, you start to see stuff that you see in Revelation. Now, I picked a simple figurative language thing here. Revelation 1, 
right in the middle of Revelation 1, 12 through 17. John says, I saw, and here's what he saw. He saw one like the Son of Man, walking among seven lampstands with a sword coming out of his mouth. Okay, now, now if you told somebody you saw that, what would they think? You, know, you were on one of those flying saucers, or you were talking in figurative language. We use figurative language all the time. We understand it. 2,000 years from now, people probably couldn't figure out what we were talking about. That figurative language there, seven golden lampstands and a sword coming out of his mouth, if you read a little bit of apocalyptic literature, you figure out, well, John even tells us, he says the lampstands are the seven churches. He said, here's the answer to that. And then if you read much this kind of literature, a sword is always a judgment. And this sword is coming out of the Son of Man. He says someone like a Son of Man, but it is the Son of Man. The sword is coming out of He's coming to bring judgment. Okay? So that one we can kind of figure out. Some of them we get. Some of them are, I'm not sure what that means. Okay? So, let me wrap this up. Why is it written in this figurative language? Why is it this picturesque stuff when it's talking about a great description or the end of time or whatever? Uh, what I put down there is, among other things, such language gives visible and earthly events a spiritual and cosmic dimension. Now, I don't know if that's the only purpose, but I think that's a good one. It helps us see that there's more to this than we see. It's a bigger deal than we are dealing with right here in Ephesus or Sardis or Philadelphia or something like that. It's a bigger event. Um, Ephesians 6, 2, 6.12 says that our battle is not down here. The battle's going on somewhere else. The, the battle is between the forces of good and the forces of darkness. Most of the time we forget that. We, we think we're the ones doing the battling down here and we're fighting against this person or that person or that false teacher or that evil person or whatever. Ephesians 6.12 says, no, the battle's going on somewhere else. Well, apocalyptic literature kind of helps you Remember that. There's this battle going on somewhere else. Uh, some of you remember I had a painting in my office uh, right as you walked in, back when I had an office. I had this painting in it of Michael the Archangel. And great painting. He had his wings behind him and he'd get his sword raised and he's got a chain he's holding and he's ready to kill the dragon, I think. But down in the corner, there's a saying that the artist put on there. And the saying says, in the battle, lines are drawn. Strength has gathered. You are not alone. Yeah. Now, when I walked into my office, I might have been thinking that day, okay, here I am. I've I got to fight this battle, i got to fight that battle, the TV channel is trying to raise the price on me, this person's complaining about that, uh, this one's teaching this wrong thing, i got to fight all these battles. 
And Michael was right there saying, it's not all you. In the battle, lines are drawn. Strength is gathered. You are not alone. Okay, that's a figurative. I don't know what Michael looks like. I think he looks a lot like that, but I don't know. I don't know if he's got a real sword or not. I don't know if he's got a chain around Satan's neck or not. But that picture raised me up to a more cosmic, spiritual level. I think that's what a lot of this figurative language is. And and told the people in Ephesus and these other cities that there are bigger things going on than you think. I think that helps us understand Revelation and all apocalyptic literature, perhaps. Okay, principle number two, which I think is very, very important, is whatever Revelation means, and whatever every detail means, if you want to try to figure out every detail, whatever it means, nothing in there is going to contradict with anything else in the Bible. Okay? And a lot of Revelation experts just completely ignore that. They just forget principle two altogether. And they come up with all these explanations of what's going to happen and when and who it is and all that, and they just ignore the rest of the Bible. A couple examples I put down for you. Uh, Revelation 20 has got that little section that talks about a thousand years. Okay, Most of the modern-day left-behind type teachers grab that and say there's going to be a thousand-year literal Reign on earth in Jerusalem. Christ is going to come sit on David's throne. Okay? If you read the rest of the Bible, nowhere does it say Christ is coming back to earth. Okay? In fact, it specifically says well, we're going to meet him in the air. It specifically says the earth is going to be burned up when he comes back. It says everybody, the the wicked and the dead, everybody are going to rise at once and meet him in the air. So, do we just throw all that out? No, you can't throw all that out. That's true. So whatever revelation means, it's got to agree with everything else in the Bible. If you hear a theory and somebody says, all right, well, in Revelation so-and-so, this means that, and that means this is going to happen. Well, if that contradicts with anything else in the Bible, you know they're wrong. Okay? If you dream up something, you think, oh, I bet that verse means this. If it disagrees with anything else in the Bible, you're wrong. So that clears up a lot of stuff about trying to figure out Revelation. Okay, uh, what I put down there next... And we're not going to go through it. I'm sure you're thankful, but we're not going to go through it. But you can take that home if you want. Uh, you don't have to, but if you'd like to go through Revelation with some kind of a guide, I kind of condensed one that I think is pretty good. Uh, Jim McGuigan, many of you know him, was, used to be a professor down at the Sunset and since gone back to Ireland, I believe. And he was one of my favorite preachers ever. Love to listen to him. Love to read his stuff because he writes exactly like he talks. You can just see him standing there talking when you read his books. I don't know how he does that, but he does. But anyhow, uh, how accurate he is on Revelation, I don't know. It just seems reasonable to me when he explains it. It sounds like, okay, yeah, I bet that's kind of what the gist is there. So 
uh, on his website, you can find there's all sorts of interesting resources on his website, uh, but if you find the articles about Revelation, uh, he's got a whole lot of them and a lot more detailed than this. This is just one little article that I condensed uh, the storyline of Revelation. He kind of goes through it chapter by chapter and says, here's what it means. So if that's helpful to you, fine, use it if you'd... Just finish Revelation and don't ever want to read it again. That's fine, too. Uh, but if you want to study it with a guide, and you can find lots of other guides. There's lots of a million books written about Revelation. Uh, so reread it if it helps. Uh, let me say one more thing about knowing what Revelation means. Uh, if you've got it figured out, if you've done a lot of study and have know exactly what it means, and you think McGuigan is completely off base here and all that. And if you come tell me that after worship this evening, I'll say, okay. On almost anything you tell me, I think it means it. Okay. Now, I'll admit, if you tell me, well, this beast is, you know, George W. Bush, and uh, this dragon is... Putin, and this one's Barack Obama, and I've got it all figured out, and this is going to happen in Israel in two months. And I'll I'll say, okay. (laughs) You you probably go for the UFO thing, too. Uh, Some people got it all figured out. They they know exactly what every person in here is, and it's happening now, and we're we're worried about next month and and all that. Some TV guys do that. I mean, they make a pretty good living tying it all into right now. Uh, But other than that, whatever you kind of think Revelation's main meaning is, uh, it's probably okay with me as long as you don't miss the, the main, main point of it. Uh, okay, so that's helpful to you if you want to use it. Now, the other thing I thought somebody might be interested in was some of the questions that people in your work group or school group or something might bring up, because there's a few things about Revelation that almost everybody knows about. There are certain teachings and phrases and numbers and uh, things that everybody knows. If you mention it to anybody, they'll say, oh, yeah, I yeah, I've heard about that. Uh, one's the millennium, the thousand-year reign, and secret rapture, and all that. You see bumper stickers about it and things. So that's on people's minds. They know about it. Uh, so I just put a real quick one-line answer down for some of this stuff so you can use it or kind of ground it in your mind. The millennium's got nothing to do with a calendar. It's nothing about a thousand 365-day years. Uh, just not. It's a symbol of a long time. And when we get to Revelation 20, it says that the Satan, Satan is imprisoned. He's defeated. He gets tied up for a thousand years. For a long time. Now you go through the rest of the Revelation and you'll see a thousand here and a thousand there. You'll see lots of numbers. And basically, the bigger the number, the longer period of time it is. A thousand years is a long time. You'll also see a year. You'll see a week. You'll see a day. You'll see seven days, seven years, 
three and a half years. See, all those kind of numbers in there. If you go back and read Daniel and Ezekiel, you'll see some of the same stuff. It's kind of symbolic, figurative language for a long time or a short time or perfection or not quite perfection. Uh, so a thousand years is just a long time. Satan defeated for a long time. Christ is reigning. Second one, there is no one antichrist. Now, if you read the Left Behind series, uh, which I did a number of years ago, just because I started reading the first one and I was kind of hooked. This is interesting. And toward the end, they got kind of boring because he was just writing books to keep selling books. But while he was telling the basic part of his story, which is interpreting Revelation exactly, literally, every person is somebody and everything has got a name and there's world leaders in there and the Antichrist finally comes along. What was his name? Nikolai. Was that it? Nikolai. It was some guy from some Eastern European country or somewhere. I can't remember where. He's the Antichrist. He rose to power over the world. Uh, there is no one Antichrist. Read First John 2. Second John 1, all of them say anyone who denies Christ is an antichrist. And he even goes on and says there are many of them out there in the world. People that deny Christ. That's an antichrist. There's not one antichrist we're waiting for. Um, even if we were waiting for all revelation to come true, which we're not. 666, everybody loves 666, or hates 666, I guess. Scares some folks. Like I told you once about the going to the license plate place and getting a new license plate, and the lady reached down in the stack, and I think the number was 663 or something. And I said, ooh, since it's so close, I said, could I have 666? She just about had a stroke. I mean, she was absolutely appalled. She, I mean, she jumped back physically like, oh, yeah. no, she said. she said. I don't ever give anybody 666. I put them in somebody else's stack. I never hand up 666. <laughs> so, so I didn't get 666. Uh, but, but some people in the world, and she probably doesn't even go to church. You know, she doesn't know 666 is bad medicine. Uh, stay away from that. Don't have anything to do with it. Uh, I, I don't think it, it says it's the number of the beast and all that. I, McGuigan's explanation is as good as any I've heard. Seven is perfection and six is less than perfection. Man is six. He's not perfect. And 666 is triple not perfect. And... The beast he's talking about that we're warring against is not perfect. He's not worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. That's who the battle's between. The battle is between perfect and mankind, evil man. Now, Satan's directing him, but the ones they were fighting against were evil rulers, uh, evil men. It just, in fact, he says right there in 1318, it's man's number. And in the Greek, it doesn't say it's a man's number. It just says it's man's number. There's no article like that, as I understand. So it's just we're fighting against man. It's a cosmic battle, but we're dealing with men here. 
Okay, you hear some about 144,000. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that, that only 144,000 are going to get in heaven, and it's already full, and they aren't even going to get in, most of them. Um, just read the passage. Read another verse or two. Now, he sees the 144,000, which are symbolic of God's people. And then he says, then I looked again, and there was a multitude around the throne. And all you can do is read one more verse, and you're done. But some people still take one verse and say, okay, 144,000. If you read further, it's all Jews, by the way, so we're out. Um then the last one, there's not going to be a secret rapture uh, of the righteous, and then the later the wicked are going to go, and there's seven years and hundred thousand, a thousand years and all that. Just read John 5, read First Thessalonians 4. It tells about the resurrection, about people coming out of their grave all together, going to meet Jesus. Then the judgment happens uh, much, very, very clear. There's not a secret rapture going on. So read some of those, and hopefully that helps. Okay, one last illustration here, uh, and see if this helps a little bit. Uh, Well, before I do that, let me tell you one other thing I had considered doing. I decided to take away too much time. Uh, I I got to thinking about what it would be like to read Revelation if you could just cut out all the stuff that you didn't understand. You know, that would be a whole lot. But if you could just read the stuff that was plain and clear, you know, I wondered if you could get the message that way. Yeah. Uh, so I got tied up a couple of nights ago doing that. I was going through and, and just picking out verses. I, my first thought was, I can read this. You know, I'll, I'll just read them the parts that are understandable and they'll get the message. Well, that'd take us too long because I, Ended up with quite a few. I got pages and pages of stuff you can understand. But if you read through that, yeah, it is amazing to me how clear things are. He starts out and so, and further, when you sit down to read it, you know, just skip the stuff you don't understand. Try that. But think first that you're a person in Ephesus. You're a Christian. John used to be there. You knew him. He told you all about Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. He told you how Jesus went to heaven. And then he went away. He got exiled. And now you're sitting there and your friends, some of them, are being killed. And the governor and people are persecuting you because you're a Christian, because you won't hail Caesar. And you don't know what Jesus is doing. You know, you know he went back to heaven, but that's all you know. And why is this going on? You know, why did that family not show up last Sunday? Because the governor had them killed. You're in the middle of this, and you get a letter from the old man that used to be there. A letter from John. And he tells you, in real quick summary, let me flip through this. He tells you, I got a vision that revealed Jesus Christ. And here's what I saw. You know, first I saw him bringing judgment to you, and he talks to each one of the seven churches who he addressed the letter to. 
and tells them what they're doing good and what they're not doing well and how they could do better. But he tells all of them, just hang on. You know, persevere. Don't give up. Don't forsake Christ. And then he begins to say, well, in Revelation 2.10, he says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer for persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you life as your victor's crown. And he goes on and talks there in chapter 2 about those who are victorious. I'll give this right to sit with me on my throne. On and on. Then over in chapter 4, after he's done with the churches, John says, And then I saw heaven. I saw a door open in heaven. And the voice, like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And he sees the throne of heaven, and he, he talks about thunder and rumblings and, and all of this, and the flashes of light and the sea of glass and the four living creatures and the 24 elders praising, and they all say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and had their being. And then I heard every creature in heaven and earth praising God. Listen to this one. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then he says, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. Then I heard a loud voice say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser has been thrown down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And then he says he sees heaven open. And the white horse and the rider, name is truth and justice. And on his thigh is king of kings and lord of lords. And then he saw the great white throne and the devil being thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. The book of life being opened, and those who had been faithful got entered in. It says, He will wipe every tear from their eye. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. Then catch the last of it. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. You leave out all the stuff that's too figurative for me to figure out. The message is pretty clear. The message is real clear. Brian told me just before I came in, he was reading Randy Harris's new book, and uh, Randy said in there somewhere that he had a three-sentence interpretation of Revelation. <laughs> a little shorter than mine. I've talked two weeks and told you I don't know. Anyhow, he said, Randy Harris said, what Revelation means is, number one, God's team wins. Number two, choose a team. 
Number three, don't be stupid. <laughs> kind of like that. <laughs> that. That's what John says in Revelation. All this is going on, seven churches. But here's what's going to happen. Uh, this stuff's going to come to pass. And in the big battle, we know who's going to win. My last illustration of what revelation means or how to think about it, perhaps, is sports illustration. We just got done with March Madness. Uh, no one has ever, as far as I know, picked a perfect bracket. I, the odds are astronomical. I don't think anybody's ever done it that I ever heard of. Got every game right in the 67 games or however many there are these days. Uh, nobody's ever done that. And along the way, in the details of this tournament, fans argue about everything and discuss everything ad infinitum. You know, each individual game, why did my team lose that or why did your team win that? And you can spend hours trying to figure out why. I mean, most common explanation is the refs. You know, we don't want it except for the refs. Yeah. Okay, and let's talk about that for a while. How about this play? I mean, you can get into more details. How about this play? If he hadn't called that, I mean, that would have been a turning point. And my team would have probably won then. You know, or if the coach would have switched this defense or put this offense in or, or something. Or if he hadn't hit that lucky shot. Remember that one? I mean, it bounced off the back of the backboard, top of it, and it still fell in. If that hadn't happened, I mean, that's the way we do with a basketball tournament, right? We get into all the details and argue and argue. What's the bottom line of March Madness? Villanova won. You know, you can discuss it till next March about why they shouldn't have or what happened and how they got there and all that. But that's the answer. Villanova won. Now, imagine this. If I would have known that on March the 1st, guess what? <laughs> I could have made better decisions on filling out the bracket. You know, the more information I had about the, if I'd have known who was in the final four, I could have done a lot better filling out the bracket. Okay, it would have changed how I watched games if I knew the final outcome. It would change how the decisions I made and all that. And I'm not even mentioning the fact that I could be rich. You know, I could have bet everything on it if I'd have known what the answer was. Now, when we sit down and read Revelation, as far as I'm concerned, you can fight all you want about who this dragon is and what that beast is and what this horn means. And it's probably interesting. It's okay if you want to do that, if you've got time. But what's the answer? It's like Randy said, God's team wins. You may not have picked a team this morning, this evening. You need to pick a team. I can tell you which one's the winning team. 
you haven't done that yet, we'd be happy to help you do that. Put Christ on in baptism, change your life, and get to serving the right team again instead of serving the losing side. We'd be happy to help you if you have any need tonight. We're here to help you. Let's stand and sing. Come if you need to.